We're going to look at 2 Samuel uh, chapter 19, beginning verse 8 and go to the end. Uh, as David mentioned in his prayer, uh, I do take the task of study and preaching very seriously. I do appreciate the church's grace and kindness to me uh, to give me opportunity to study and pray and prepare, uh, which I think is beneficial to the church and at the heart of the work of a pastor. So thank you. I don't take it lightly. Second Samuel verse, I'm sorry, chapter 19, beginning in verse 8. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. This is a time of betrayal. It's been a time of civil war uh, in Israel where Absalom, David's own son, betrayed him, uh, became essentially a, a leader, and led many people in Israel against David, who was God's ordained, anointed, chosen king. And here we see Absalom's been defeated. Uh, and, and if you think of a story arc where there's building conflict and then there's a climax and resolution, we've had the, the climax has come, Absalom's been de- killed, uh, and now the resolution is David is, is back to doing what a king should do. He's back in the gate. Uh, he's sitting with the leaders of the people in the gate, conversing with the people and making decisions. So that's some of the background that will, will, will lead us into the next section. Now, Israel had fled every man to his own home. That's essentially after they'd been defeated in battle. Uh, from the account, most of the people were following Absalom. David had a seemingly small contingent with him who were loyal to him. And essentially, after Absalom's defeated, uh, this group that were following Absalom disperse, and it's like they flee, verse 9. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, who we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? That's what this section's about. It's about the king coming back. David returning to the place that God had appointed for him, the king of Israel. And notice the people are talking about this, and and there's there's tension here. So this is a context of, of tension. It's a context of anxiety. There's a lot of uncertainty in the air, and and essentially they say some good and right things about King David. He delivered us from our enemies, from the hand of the Philistines. And keep in mind, for years and years and years, Israel lived under the boot of the Philistines. I mean, that's where you find them at the end of the book of Judges and then 1 Samuel. I mean, they they are subject to the Philistines. They're the slaves of the Philistines. They're the vassals of the Philistines. And God uses David to bring them out from under that and essentially kind of bring them into a golden era as far as their history is gone. And they recount that. David delivered us. He saved us from the Philistines. Then he fled, but this other guy, Absalom, that we anointed is dead. And now, therefore, is no one saying anything about bringing the king back. And, and some of the anxieties, well, what's going to happen when the king comes back? Right? The king is a man of war. The, the king historically has not always been favorable to his enemies. In fact, he's been known to wipe his enemies out in the past. 
So there's a lot of tension in the air. If, if you read um, Shakespeare's Hamlet, which you should sometime, it's, it's a hard read, but wow. Um, Hamlet is, is one of the, the odd things about the story is it's hard to figure out who the bad guys are. Because almost like everybody's a bad guy in that story. But there is one guy who's the really, really bad guy. And he's the king. And in that story, the king, I believe his name's Claudius. And he became king by killing his brother, allegedly. Poisoned his brother. And now he's taken the previous king's wife. So now you have the, the essentially who becomes, he's like the evil uncle who's now king. And, and now he's taken the wife. And the story, the main character of the story is Hamlet, who was the dead king's son. And now his mom's with this guy who killed his father. And the whole story is, is essentially about Hamlet plotting revenge to kill the new king. And that's where the tension and the struggle in, in that play comes out over and over again. It's a story of revenge. It's, a, it's, it's got a lot of depravity in it. But ultimately in the last scene or in the last act, I guess it is, Hamlet himself is killed in an act of revenge. And, and it just shows what folly plotting revenge is. That's part of the point. And so as these people are thinking about, now that the king is going to come back, is he going to seek vengeance on us, which would be a concern as we're going to see in this passage? We see the grace of God in the life of David. And, and look at how David treats his enemies. And that, that, that forms the, the heart of what this passage demonstrates for us. Look at it in verse 11. King David sent this message to Zadok and Abathar the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house? When the word of all Israel has come to the king, you are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also, if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. What I think you see here in this section, as there's this mounting tension and these questions about what the king's going to do, is you just see here an example, I believe, of David's wisdom in his leadership. There, there's some wise strategic action that David takes place. David knows about this sentiment about why, why, why aren't we talking about bringing the king back? Again, he's been sitting in the gate. He's been interacting with other leaders. He knows about this sentiment that we, we read about in verses 8 through 10. And, and notice what he says, say to the elders of Judah, why should you be last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? David knows about this, this desire to see the king return. But notice the strategic wisdom in David's choices here. He sends the message to Zadok and Abathar, the priests, and their mission is to go to the elders of Judah. Again, this is significant because priests in that day and time, especially the high priest, has instant credibility. He's essentially the main guy who represents Israel before God. So I think you just see a master stroke of diplomacy here and wisdom here. David takes the initiative and he uses wise diplomacy in sending the priests to bring this message. 
These are men, Zadok and Abathar, who demand honor and demand respect. And notice who he sends them to, the elders of Judah. You remember Israel has these different tribes. One of them is Judah. That's the tribe David comes from. So that's why all this language you see here of you know, bone and flesh, they're family. Their family. It's also important that he goes to the elders of Judah because it was the elders of Judah who evidently initiated Absalom's rebellion or at least aided him. When David first became king, when he first started ruling, he ruled for seven years in the city of Hebron, which is a city essentially controlled by Judah. So for seven years and six months, David rules in Hebron and then he moves to Jerusalem and rules over all of Israel. Well, when Absalom plotted his conspiracy and his treachery, guess where he went? He went to Hebron, the place where David was originally crowned king. And evidently, Absalom, who again is of the tribe of Judah, initiated his treachery by being anointed by the people, the elders of Judah. That's probably one of the reasons why David starts with them. And then again, you see grace already starting to come forth in this message to Amasa. Now, Amasa was the guy who Absalom had appointed as leader over his army. So this is the guy from the tribe of Judah. Absalom appointed Amasa to lead the armies against David and his men. And what is David? So David's got to deal with this. What's the king going to do about Amasa? He's been a traitor. He's led Israelites to kill other Israelites. What's David going to do? Well, look at the message David says. I'll make him captain of the guard. I'll make him the leader of the army. Don't worry about him. He will take care of him. So he uses some wise diplomacy here. Uh, and and, and some, you, you already start to see the grace. But now when, when David fled from Jerusalem, you essentially saw this lineup of people mourning and wailing for the king who was fleeing. But now that the elders of Judah are bringing David back and they meet him at, at the Jordan, where, where essentially where he's at now is a little north of Jerusalem and across the Jordan River. The elders of Judah come up to meet him. They, the word spreads he's going to cross the Jordan and come back to Jerusalem. When he's about to cross the river, the elders of Judah meet him there. And now there's this whole host of people. There's this massive reception that is going to meet David as he re-enters the land to go to Jerusalem. So there's, there's this expectation now of people that there's going to be reconciliation in Israel. And because of the grace David offers these people, it's going to come about. So, so pick it up in verse 16. And, and we're going to see a whole cast of characters who we've met before come to David seeking forgiveness. This is an amazing scene. This is an amazing scene. Verse 16, and Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, from Baharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day 
the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down and meet my lord the king. Abishai the son of Zeruah answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruah, that you should this day be an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For I do not know, for, for do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Now, Shimei we met earlier when David was fleeing from Jerusalem. It's just this audacious scene where David's fleeing, essentially amid weeping and wailing, and Shimei is a guy who's associated with the house of Saul. Notice he's of the tribe of Benjamin. This is, this is Saul, the dead kings, the previous king's family. And Shimei comes out and curses David and throws stones at him. In fact, it's so emphatic that the, the scripture reiterates how this guy keeps cursing David. And David then spares his life. When he actually, he, he could have killed him, but he didn't. This guy is one of the first guys that we read about who comes back to meet David when David's coming back into the land. And notice, don't, don't take it lightly, the facts that are shared here. He's with a thousand men from Benjamin. He's got a large contingent with him. Essentially, he's seemingly representing this tribe of Benjamin. And he comes and what does he do? He says, I've sinned. And he's on his knees before David. He's contrite. He's contrite. One of David's closest friends and advisors and loyal soldiers says, let's kill him. And incidentally, there's, the case can be made that under the law, he's guilty of, of a capital crime. He's cursed the king. You can make a case from the Old Testament law, he should have the death penalty right now. But what does David do? He offers forgiveness. It's an audacious forgiveness. David is in, again, he knows he's the king. He's back in power. He has, a, I believe, a biblical right to kill this man and doesn't do it. Rather, he offers him forgiveness. Again, quite different than the story of Hamlet. Quite different from worldly kings. What you see David doing here is he's forgiving previous enemies. Amasa. And now this villain, Shimei. He's characterized by forgiveness. But there's more. There's also Ziba. Ziba, who I believe, if you, if you, if you read between the lines, I think Ziba is a liar and a cheat and, and uh, essentially just trying to take advantage of the situation. We'll talk more about him in a minute. He also comes with several servants and his 15 sons, obviously a, a man of significance in the tribe of Benjamin, and there's forgiveness. Forgiveness all around from the betrayed king. Now you think about being a human and being put in a place of that kind of power, having the opportunity to carry out revenge, and he does the opposite. He forgives. He forgives. Then there's Mephibosheth. Look at verse 24. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. Now think about it. This is a, a significant amount of time. <laughs> when it says that it ha he hasn't taken care of his feet, it means he has not cut his toenails. He is in a gross state. Furthermore, he's not washed his clothes. 
He's not shaved. He looks worse probably than any homeless person you've ever seen, which is a strong evidence to show you he's been mourning David's absence. That's what this is a sign of. He's making it obvious to everyone around him he's sad that the king has been deposed. Look what happens in verse 25. When he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For my servant said to him, For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more further of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come home safely. And if you you go back and read the account, essentially Mephibosheth's servant Ziba betrayed Mephibosheth to get in good with the king when the king was on the run. Why then does David allow Ziba to have half the profit? Because Ziba does help the king. Ziba does help him and provide for him while he's in exile. There's a lot of, again, it's, it's a tangled web they weave. But, but essentially, I think this vindicates Mephibosheth, the lame man who, again, was doomed, but David showed him grace earlier, and David now shows him grace again. And he shows Ziba grace. Ziba, who's now, I think, proven to be a villain, David offers forgiveness. Well, obviously, life is full of complicated relationships, isn't it? Second Samuel is full of complicated relationships. Part of our relationships with people is being wounded, being betrayed. And what should we do as Christians? We should offer forgiveness. That's the biblical teaching. There's, there's times when people wrong us and they didn't even know they wronged us. Oftentimes, I think, or sometimes at least, they didn't mean to. Obviously, there's times when it's planned, intentional, and belligerent, and wicked, and depraved. David prays in one place, Psalm 19, acquit me of my hidden faults. There is a reality that we all have unintentional sins in our life. But the point here is, look at David's example of forgiveness. And these relational wounds are painful. Listen to Colossians 3, 12 to 14 and what it says about forgiveness. Colossians 3, 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. All of those interrelational words. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. There's the Christian ethic. You must forgive. This is just the teaching of the Lord and the Word of God. We must forgive. You see it here in the example. And again, you think about what David's been through. Here's a bonus verse, verse 14. 
And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Perfect harmony sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Well, you can't control other people, but you're called to forgive. And if we're going to be faithful Christians and obedient to the Lord, we must forgive. We must forgive. And it's, be- it's good for your soul anyway. You don't, want to bear, you don't want to bear these animosities. against that. We, I'm not, there are real grievances and severe wounds that people have to bear and deal with. But the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ is to forgive. The teaching of the Scripture is forgive as you were forgiven. You think Paul gives us a, a good example of this in 2 Timothy 4. So the, the, the last chapter Paul the Apostle writes. It's a really painful chapter. Listen to what he says in 2 Timothy 4.11. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. This is Paul writing in the last letter to Timothy, his friend and understudy and he wants to see Mark before he dies. Tim, Paul knows he's about to die. Bring Mark with you. Well, one of the things that's recorded in the book of Acts is, I believe it was the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas and Mark. And Mark, for I believe it's an unexplained reason, du- quits, apparently. Or at least returns home. Or we just don't know the details. What we do know is, on the next journey when they're about to send out, Paul refuses to take Mark along. Don't know all the details of that. And this is where there's not a small dissension that arises between Paul and Barnabas. Paul the apostle, Barnabas the son of encouragement, divide. Incidentally, it's the last time you read about Barnabas in the book of Acts. And so you're left with this really situation that's sad and tragic and divisive and it's over this guy Mark who Paul has this grievance against a grievance so strong that Paul refuses to go on a missionary journey with him but look at the last words of Paul in 2 Timothy 4 get Mark and bring him with you Don't you just love the providence of God and the inspiration of his word? Aren't you glad that that little thread is tied up? You don't know all the details, but you do know that Paul's recognition now of Mark is he's profitable. He's profitable. This is what Paul says later in 2 Timothy 4.16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Possibly, and I think even likely Luke included in that. All deserted me. May it not be charged against them. There's a good attitude to have as you're going out and about to die. Let's not hold this against them. The fact. You see, Paul is forgiving. Oh, and you think about that. Why is David so forgiving? Well, he's been forgiven much. And he's, he's borne the consequences of his sin over and over again in his life. That's why we have this whole Absalom debacle. And he knows it. It's because of his own sin. And he's dealt with that. But not only has he dealt with the consequences in his life of his sin, he also has received gratuitous forgiveness. An amazing grace. Amazing grace. He repents and Nathan's response is, your sin has been taken away. <coughs> wow. 
David received forgiveness from the Lord. And what is he going to do but forgive those who cursed him and threw rocks at him and betrayed him and cheated him and lied to him? He forgives them. What a powerful picture you have here. After a horrible event in his life of dealing with the betrayal of his own son, not only the betrayal of his son, but the betrayal of most of the nation that God had appointed him over. He offers forgiveness. He also offers grace. Look at what he does in verse 31. Now Barzillai, the Gileadite, had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in, Jor- in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still got to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Notice the humility there. Notice the, the, the repetition of the king. <laughs> the author of 2 Samuel wants to make real clear who the king is. It's David. And this guy recognizes it. Verse 37. Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city, near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. Let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. One of the fun things about the Bible is it, it provides you good ideas for baby names. Chimham. Not one you hear very often. You could call him Chim. Sorry, <laughs> I couldn't resist. Uh, verse 38. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over, and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. You see, David rewards those who remain loyal to him. What a virtue that is, to be loyal. Essentially, this guy, Barzillai, the old man, is offered a place in the king's court. This is a pretty good gig. I mean, this is good in every imaginable way. He doesn't accept it. He doesn't accept it. But again, you see the grace of David emphasized. Incidentally, about Chimham, he's only mentioned one other place in Scripture. It's in Jeremiah 41, but I think it, it, it gives you an echo of what happened here. And this, is, this would be a few hundred years later. Look at what Jeremiah 41, 17 says. And they went and stayed at Gareth Chimham, near Bethlehem, intending to go to Egypt. The significance of that is there is a place named Chimham near Bethlehem, which, again, remember, is the city of David. This is where David's from. Near David is this city named Chimham. 
Why is it named that? Well, to have a place, a city, a town named for you was quite an honor. So you see, David here honors this son of Barzillai. And in fact, whenever David dies, Chimham's not mentioned, but in David's instructions to Solomon, part of his instructions are, allow the sons of Barzillai to sit at your table. So you see, just grace on top of grace extended to this guy that showed kindness to him. That's all, that's all good stuff, isn't it? It's not like Hamlet. It's way better. Well, that's not where it ends, though. Check this out. Verse 41. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative, why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten it all at the king's expense, or have we give, has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. This is abiding strife. This should be a time of celebration. It's the return of the king. By the way, it was initiated by their idea. But what do you have here? What do you have here? You have a cesspool of depravity of people arguing over it. I think we'll just take that next time and that can... That can be good enough for its own sermon. So let's just review tonight. Simple facts. See David's wisdom in a difficult context. I think the focus here, the, the bulk of the passage, the gratuitous forgiveness David offers those who curse him, who throw rocks at him. As Christians, let's pray for God's help to forgive. It's determined to forgive. Those, bearing those Wounds, those relational wounds and being unforgiving is not good for our souls, let alone contrary to the way God would have us live. We need to strive to agree quickly with our accuser, like Jesus teaches us. We need to strive to, to be at peace with all men, especially those of the household of faith. Again, we can't control what other people do or how they react, but we should strive for peace. And we should forgive. And in fact, you know what? It might be useful, it might be helpful, it might be sanctifying both to you and to others if you took the initiation of saying, you know, this wounded me, but by the grace of God, I've forgiven you. That could help restore a relationship. There can be reconciliation. Life's too short, friends, isn't it? Just to to walk around with bitterness on your back. Forgive and move on by the grace of God. You see David do that here. Let's pray together. God, help us to learn from David's example, his example of wisdom and prudence and grace, his example of forgiveness, and God, his example of giving grace upon grace. Help us to treat others that way. 
Help us to be quick to forgive. Help us not to harbor resentment. But Lord, help us to forgive those who trespass against us. Give us grace and strength and help to do that, God. I pray even tonight, anyone harboring bitterness, resentment, or unforgiveness, God, that you'd grant help, grace to forgive. God, help us deal with the real relational wounds in life. God, help us to give grace to people. Just to be kind-hearted to people. To be compassionate to people. To be humble in our dealings with people. Knowing, God, that we've been forgiven much. We thank you for that, Lord. That our sins are innumerable. They are legion. And though they are black and red, you've made us white as snow by the blood of Christ. It's by his righteousness. We thank you, Lord, for that. So help us because of his example, dying on the cross, forgiving those who are putting him to death, the only innocent man who's ever lived. Help us to forgive. Help us to have a spirit like Paul that says, may it not be held against them. Even when others may severe sins that wound us. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing to the Lord. Again, the good news is God forgives. Uh, he, he forgives through his son. Isn't it astounding the lengths God went so that we would be forgiven? It pleased him to crush his own son shows the goodness and the love of God that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was raised from the dead. The call is to repent, to turn from sins and trust in him. To put your trust in Jesus, not in yourself. To, to plea for him for forgiveness. And the, the scripture says, David in his prayer of repentance, Psalm 51, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. God is merciful to the brokenhearted. He's merciful to the repentant and contrite. He forgives the repentant sinner.